The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Oranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a conversation of hope for Tuesday, September 18th. I'm your host, Terry Aranga, here with my guest, Beth Clay. Beth Clay is the Senior Vice President of Capital Strategy Consultants and was the former Senior Professional Staff Member on the House of Representatives Committee on Oversight and Government Reform with Chairman Congressman Dan Burton. Beth oversaw all health care oversight hearings of the committee, including looking at the role of complementary and alternative medicine in our health system, the FDA's enforcement of the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, and vaccine injury issues, including anthrax vaccine injury in the military and the epidemic rise in rates of autism and its relation to vaccine injury and ingredients such as thimerosal. While working for Congress, Ms. Clay served as a member of the U.S. Delegation of the Codex Alimentarius Commission Committee on Nutrition and Foods for Special Dietary Uses. Our topic today is health freedom in 2012 and why it matters more now than ever. Welcome, Beth. Hi. Thanks for having me on your show, Terry. Well, thank you for sharing your time with our listeners. Beth, this past year, the health freedom and autism communities came together officially at the Health Freedom Congress. And, Beth, you've been a, a long-time promoter of health freedom. How did you come to be involved, and why does health freedom matter so much to the autism community in particular? Well, health freedom um, is an area that I have been involved with for many years. Uh, I came to it uh, kind of by happenstance uh, in the early 1960s when I was a child, actually. Uh, chiropractics was under attack from the medical mainstream medical community, and I had exposure to those issues. And then working in the government and then working for Congress, seeing that uh, the government is often trying to limit uh, the decision making of parents and individuals in their health, you know, in their health approaches. Um, areas such as in pediatric cancer, when a parent uh, questions the authority of a doctor and wants a second opinion or wants to look at an alternative therapy. The, the physician often colludes with the state medical associate, state medical authorities to take custody of the child away from the parent to force a medical treatment that the parents um, weren't looking to, to do. And the cases like Thomas Navarro and Danny Hauser come to mind. And the, the same thing with mandated vaccines. Um, I saw instances, for instance, uh, we dealt with a case when I was working for Congress where a mother in the hospital with one of one of her children, you know, with a newborn, asked a question about immuniz- delaying immunization or not immunizing. She had a special needs child at home. She wasn't refusing vaccination. She was asking a question. The state took custody of all of her children until um, Congress interceded and, and raised, you know, well, you know, pointed out that the fact that the parent had a responsibility to ask questions. Um, so those sorts of things, you know, raise my concern levels. And in the area of alternative medicine, uh, practitioners and patients alike have seen uh, access to therapies or attempts to limit access to therapies and products. And this can happen in overt and insidious ways? Yes, and it does. Uh, we see, um, oftentimes we see policy decisions that on the surface don't seem like they're going to limit your freedom, but in fact they do. For instance, uh, in states where they have taken away the religious exemption or are modifying the religious exemption to vaccines to be impossible to comply with, that is taking away personal liberty um, and, and should be addressed. And some things aren't immediately apparent. So you can have a situation such as is happening in California where you need to 
consult with a medical provider and the medical provider needs to give you um, backup for not vaccinating, but then what happens if medical providers feel as if they are going to be threatened in some way if they give a vaccine exemption? Well, and that is, you know, we can draw a conclusion for how this will be handled by the state medical boards from the same way and from the federal government, the same way you look at pain management. Doctors who often prescribe um, strong pain management, uh, controlled substances for pain management over the years, um, some doctors are reluctant to make those, to, to give those prescriptions because they don't want the, the Drug Enforcement Association or the state medical boards um, looking at them too closely or coming after them for overprescribing. The same thing will happen with a state medical board in California if you have a doctor who becomes the go-to person to get your exemptions um, from vaccinations. They will be under scrutiny, and I have dealt with doctors over the last 20 years who have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars defending their medical license against attacks based not on having done anything wrong, but based on a different policy perspective. Right. So in addition to mainstream doctors receiving a lack of education, and so that seems like an oxymoron, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, lack of education coming down the line from higher authorities, if there is an enlightened doctor, then that enlightened doctor needs to worry about threats to licensure and money tied up in lawsuits. And if there's money tied up in lawsuits, then that can put them out of business in a way that parents and children don't have access to enlightened health care. Um, that is exactly correct. You know, the things that have been happening in medicine in general over the last few years um, have put about 50% of doctors uh, into a retrospective review of, you know, kind of, or uh, uh, they've been looking inside themselves and saying, do I want to continue practicing medicine? Because the bureaucracy of medicine has become so complex and so expensive. And then when you compound that with the potential attacks to their ability to serve their patients, um, it, it makes it a no-win situation for anybody. And then what happens at the end of the day is you have patients who don't get access to qualified health care and in services not being rendered. So the parents are being forced to spend money on an annual basis to go see a doctor who's going to write a, you know, write an exemption if they can get a doctor to do that, which is an expense and a time consumption that we simply don't need. A parent is, is the authority on their child. They are the one who lives 24-7 with that child and should be the only one who should have to fill out any forms to say my child is not being vaccinated. You were talking about the case of the mother in the hospital and her children being taken into custody and um, Child Protective Services being called in, and we're talking about the medical community and there being political reasons for there to be a lack of enlightenment and education in mainstream medicine. Mm-hmm. So then when we talk about reasonable and customary, oh, this practitioner didn't act in a reasonable and customary manner, um, politics are uh, political pressures are dictating what's reasonable and customary because the only practitioners left are following the dogmen, following what's handed down to them, following the edict of the mainstream um, bulwarks and industry, which are influenced by industry. Is that making sense? It, yes, it does make sense. And, and what you're saying is incredibly important. Understand that we have too few physicians, too few medical doctors in this country. All the policy experts who look in this area, and I've consulted in this field, are concerned about the, that we have too few doctors per capita in this country. And we and we are blessed to have more than most countries in Africa. You may have one doctor per you know 10,000 patients, um, but we have too few to adequately address the issues. Um, and if you can, if if it's hard to get into medical school, it's hard to graduate, it's hard to get a license, and then it's harder to practice medicine according to your own experiences, observations, uh, and training. Uh, you, and you're dealing with the dogma of industry forcing, you know, a certain approach on you or policies from coming from government, oftentimes from government with an agenda onto you. It, it's very hard to do, you know, to be, you know, a physician is a teacher. And that's what we often lose in the conversation. The, 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 the meaning of the word physician is to teach. Uh, and right now what it is is to treat by writing a prescription for a drug. 
Um, and, and that is sadly, um, you know, what we've been battling in the policy discussions. Medical schools, the students in medical schools are often pushing back against the industry-driven influence of their medical education. So now they are passing uh, policies in medical schools that say no industry-sponsored meals uh, or lectures. You know, we, are, we want to hear an unbiased opinion. Um, so there is some fluctuation there, and it needs to continue that we continue to have uh, industry be limited in their influence in both education and practice. Well, that's actually encouraging to hear, Beth. Uh, you, you know, you had mentioned medical school, and what it brought to my mind is that a doctor who's, you know, daddy spent half a million bucks on his education or her education, and I'm just throwing that figure out there. I don't know if it actually costs half a million dollars to, to go through the education. Maybe it's more. I don't know. But wouldn't want to do anything that threatened their licensure after all of that hard work, you know, years of study and all of the expense, and maybe they have a loan out or maybe their parents spent a lot so they could get their, you know, go through everything to get their license. What do you think? Well, I think it, it, it poses a difficult question for a medical student. They spend a significant part of their life preparing to go to medical school, and then that, that huge commitment uh, both for medical school, the residencies, and, and the fellowships that come afterwards, and then sitting for the license uh, and the board exams. And they often do incur hundreds of thousands of dollars of loans um, and, you know, worrying about paying that back. And, and frankly, it's not as profitable today to be a doctor as it used to be because if you depend on government reimbursement, uh, Medicare payments are going down towards doctors while the bureaucracy to manage those payments has gone up. So you actually, doctors actually get paid less today than they did, say, five years ago for providing the same service, even though inflation is through the roof for the services that they are providing. Their rents are up, their salaries are up for their staff, and all the other expenses that, you know, they incur as a result. Um, so it's, it's challenging, and, you know, only some doctors are going to buck the system. Others will comply just so they can go along. They, they will go along to get along, as the saying goes. Wow, I guess you would say that they have to immunize their conscience. How can you find <laughs> an ethical doctor? You know, you're you're fortunate to find an ethical doctor uh, under uh, in this kind of political climate. It, it also reminds me of the whole thing about peer review. So often in the autism community, we get pelted with there's no you know double blind placebo-controlled, peer-reviewed study, but there's, all, there's the politics of proof. There, there's a lot of politics behind what can get peer-reviewed. You know, there's, there's who can afford to go to medical school and then who will stick their neck out and what is the, uh, what's the process to get something into a prestigious journal and if it doesn't get there, then that's also going to influence court cases. So mm -hmm. enlightened science uh, hardly stands well, a chance, you know, perhaps. Science, I, I, have, to say. I, I have to say from personal experience and observations of certain activities within government management of research, I have lost a significant amount of respect for prestigious research institutions. I, I have collaborated with uh, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, who's a physician who does extraordinary work um, in treating a number of diseases, but he's best known for treating cancer, in particular pancreatic cancer. He has an alternative therapy that uses uh, detoxification and a pancreatic enzyme process. And he came to the NIH when I worked there, he presented a best-case series to the Cancer Institute. He agreed to do a, the first-ever head-to-head comparison of an alternative approach to a conventional cancer approach. Uh, ten years of his life, extraordinary uh, investment, and bungled. The management of the study was absolutely mismanaged by the NIH. Uh, things like failure to, you know, they, well, they changed the protocol for one, and failure to get payments. So he was having to take money out of his own personal savings to pay for the dietary supplements for his cancer patients so that the study could continue. In the eight months, it took the government and Columbia University to get their act together because it was like everything they could do bureaucratically to slow or stop the study, they did repeatedly right. over years and years. The violations in human subject protection laws by the clinical investigator who was principal investigator at Columbia were documented, found, 
by two different government agencies he was found in violation. The man still practices medicine. He still gets federal dollars. And he published a paper without Dr. Gonzalez, without the NIH, and it stands as the respected outcome of the study saying the chemotherapy did better than the, the, can, the alternative cancer approach, when in fact it did not. And I have patients I have known from Dr. Gonzalez who are 15-year-plus survivors of cancer, and I have a friend who was stage 4 lung cancer who went to see him who is now well three years later when conventional medicine said you've got six months. You know, and it, the same thing happens in autism. It happens in vaccine injury research. We're seeing bad science be pushed upon the community, um, epidemiological reviews that are, that are um, poorly designed, poorly implemented, and potentially done with fraud intent. You know, the two people who have been involved and responsible for the two major sets of studies. Um, Dr. Verstraten, the original analysis of his data was never presented at Simpsonwood. Had it been, Samarasol would have been out of the marketplace. Instead, he refigured the stuff, working with CDC personnel, presented a different watered-down data that was then further diluted over the years between then and publication. Paul Thorson committed fraud, is under federal indictment for stealing money from, from autism research funds. He's, he is still free today in Denmark, practicing in an, an OBGYN hospital, continues to publish in the peer-reviewed literature with a CDC employee a year after federal indictment. And his papers have not been retracted and continue to be used in the lawsuits that say vaccine injury isn't related to autism. And every time you go in a pediatrician's office, you can go in a pediatrician's office or a regular medical office and you hear the Danish study, the Danish study, the Danish study, or the, these 14 studies, but there's so much politics behind those studies and, um, you know, uh, you have to look at the methodologies and look at, look at what was used, but those are being used to the detriment of the safety of children. And, well, and, uh, and that's exactly the case. It is, it is implausible to me how a physician, a healthcare professional who is trained to protect life, to do no harm, will think it's acceptable to inject the second most toxic substance on the planet into a child within hours of birth. It is implausible to me how anybody, if they look at it without the policy and the politics involved, can say that's acceptable. You know, I would sooner, it just, it just makes no sense at all. And when you look at, you know, it's, I find, you know, for people to say that it's the same thing, I don't know if you watched the news over the weekend with the, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations saying that there was no organizational effort into attacking our embassy personnel on 9-11, um, 11 years after the attack on the World Trade Center and, and killing four of our personnel, including a U.S. ambassador, that that was the result of, of, of anger over a movie and that we had people with RPGs and, and automatic firearms attacking from three sides an unsecured um, uh, embassy facility. Um, and that was not an organized effort. You know, for her to sit on TV and to say that on all the news shows is implausible, illogical, and everybody's laughing at her. And it's the same thing that people who look at the issue in depth say about U.S. federal personnel who sit in courts and who teach doctors that there's nothing wrong with vaccine, you know, that vaccines have no risk and that children have not been harmed, even though since the beginning of the program, um, we've been compensating families for vaccine injuries that cause brain injury that then led to the diagnosis of autism. Right, and people can find more information about that by looking up the unanswered questions paper. Uh, that should be on the EBCALA website. I think that's yes. www.ebcala.org, and I'll double-check that during the break. We're going to break here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We want to thank our sponsors, OxyHealth and Superberries, and we will be right back with Beth Clay. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? 
Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling. Whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We are back with Beth Clay. And just to remind uh, listeners, Beth Clay was the former senior professional staff member on the House of Representatives Committee on Oversight and Government Reform with the chairman, Congressman Dan Burton. And um, before the break... I mentioned the EBCALA website that stands for Elizabeth Burt Center for Autism Law and Advocacy, and there is a tab there for the unanswered questions study, and that talks about how for decades, uh, for decades, uh, families were being compensated for children who had vaccine injury who just so happened to also have autism. Uh, and this is in the face of denials, official denials for years that vaccines don't cause autism. So, uh, Beth, we were also going to talk about Codex today, and a lot of listeners may not know what Codex is, that's C-O-D-E-X, and then why that would be relevant to their children with autism. Okay, well, the Codex um, stands for the Codex Alimentarius Commission, it is an international uh, body, a uh, rulemaking body with WTO, World Trade Organization, level authority. Uh, and it's, it was created in the 1960s as a collaboration between two United Nations organizations, the, the FAO and the WHO. And they came together to try to um, develop food standards for cleanliness uh, for foods that were going to be sold between countries, so improving the trade of foods was was the original intent of this organization. So they developed standards, for instance, on pesticides and food content so that you had to make sure, um, you know, that you weren't selling uh, dirty uh, peaches, you know, between countries or, or other things like that or apple juice that contained uh, high levels of pesticides in it. So the original intent was to develop these standards to make it easier for, for businesses to do uh, to sell their products from, you know, in, in the international community. Now, what has developed over the last decade or so uh, is, a, is a focus more on, on issues like dietary supplement regulation. So they had, in the 1990s, developed a guideline for vitamin and mineral supplements in countries where food, for dietary supplements are regulated like foods, where they're setting maximum upper limits and, and this comes out of, you know, the work that we have done here in the United States to protect access to dietary supplements. So our U.S. Uh, authorities on the delegation have gone into the international community to set an, an international agenda that differs than what the U.S. law states. And they have worked with their colleagues in the, in the European Union and other places to really uh, control the access to dietary supplements. And then, and now in the in the, mass, in the last two or three years. They're also setting policies on what foods can be sold. So they're, talk, they're talking about sodium content. They're talking about things that in the general discussion might seem like a smart thing to do, except that you're taking away decision-making from the families. You're also not taking into account cultural differences in foods and, and those food contents. So in countries, for instance, where uh, higher fat consumption is a part of the normal diet, um, that is being discounted and, you know, a, a singular Anglo-Saxon uh, mindset of food control uh, and food use is is trying to um, develop an agenda for the global community and anybody 
um, who, con- who is concerned about government controlling your access to food and supplements need to, needs to be watching and be concerned about what's happening at Codex. So let me get this straight. When you go in the future, when you go into the grocery store with the microchip that's in your hand and you scan it across the scanner to purchase your groceries and it has all your medical records in the microchip that is in your hand probably injected through your vaccine, then is it going to prohibit you from buying the ho-hos and ding-dongs if you have a medical condition that precludes this? Well, you know, that's interesting because you can buy your ho-hos and ding-dongs if you have food stamps, but if the government gets their way in this in this global community, you may not be able to purchase these. They won't be on the shelves. They will be barred from being in the in the in the, in the marketplace, for one, not unlike large uh, sugared soft drinks in New York City as today. Um, but, you know, if we move to a society, which some people have put forward the, the capacity exists to do, where you are being regulated by or what you produce is regulated by a, a medical implant, um, then, yes, that could be done by a government entity to decide that you, you know, you have diabetes, so therefore you can't, you can't purchase foods that have high sugar content. But, but wait a and, second, Beth. Some people think that people can get diabetes because they've had an autoimmune reaction that had to do with their vaccines. How does that work? Well, you know, it's very interesting because I look at this, and I've begun looking at this from a bigger perspective. Um, I look at, one, the IGF-1 molecule that's adversely affected by exposure to mercury as also regulates diabetes, and that's something that... Uh, is being looked at by um, by some individuals in the uh, in the uh, autoimmune community, um, but the other issue is is food. We we have and you and I have talked a little bit about this. Genetically modified food is more and more encroaching its way into society and into the marketplace. Now, rice is a is a a food that is a staple in almost every population on the planet, whether it's the Middle East or it's Africa or it's the Caribbean or it's Asia. Rice is the main component. Well, rice has been genetically modified uh, without people's realizing it so that it's not the same rice of 50 years ago, so that you have a higher glycemic response to rice consumption. And I know my own mother has diabetes and, and didn't get it until she was 70. And it, rice is the one food that will spike her sugar levels more so than any other food that she can consume. So if she has, whether it's white rice or brown rice or sticky rice, any of the rices, that, you know, the different brands we've tried, it will spike her levels because it's not the same rice that was was on the planet 100 years ago. So we have created, in, in these populations, these varied populations that I've just mentioned, diabetes is the number one health concern. It is through the roof in different countries, and it's because they're using genetically modified rice. And you tie that in also then to, you know, the injury that's taken place from mercury exposure and other vaccine injuries. And there's no, there's no reason to not suspect that there's a connection. Okay. First of all, I want to reassure listeners that I think taking, you know, pink cereal sugar puff bombs off the shelf would be a good thing. I'm not advocating for unhealthful foods. Um, but what I'm saying here is that it seems like there's either some arbitrary actions or something going on where um, foods are being restricted, uh, but there's, I've heard, birth control in GMO foods. There are people trying to restrict our access to healthful dietary supplements and regulate how much uh, how many nutrients we can have through supplements, empowering ourselves to, uh, to be, you know, immunized through good nutrition, especially in view of soil degradation. Uh, so it seems like the powers that be are talking out of both sides of their mouth. We're going to protect you from this bad food here, but we're going to do all these bad things over here on this side. Is that making sense, Seth? You know, you bring up a lot of very good points, and, and let me let me be clear about this. I don't know, I have no facts to prove whether some of the things that are being done with foods and or vaccines, whether, whether they've been done consciously and maliciously or whether they've just happened. 
You know, sometimes I think it's the, the imperfect storm, not unlike in the movie Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, where you throw all these chemicals into, into the sink, and that's what we've done in our society. And then you make dumb decisions like, oh, well, let's, let's keep mercury in vaccines, and then let's give a child five different vaccines, all that contain mercury in the same day. You know, I don't know whether that's been done consciously or unconsciously. But if you look at the food supply and you say, They've made some of these changes. The government agencies responsible for ensuring that these things are safe before they enter the marketplace have failed at their job, have consciously failed and sided with industry, um, and the consumer simply wants labeling. If you look at, I want to read a label that says whether this product's been genetically engineered or not or genetically modified, and repeatedly, you know, over 90, 95% of Americans for more than a decade, for almost 20 years, have said we want labeling of genetically modified foods. And yet, our government has failed to do so. And now, and to tie into the, the lovely conspiracy theories of the world, uh, and to see the conscious efforts, the Gates Foundation, when, when Senator uh, Sanders tried to attach the agricultural reform bill, an amendment said labeling of GMO foods, it wasn't Monsanto and other agricultural industry folks who were calling Capitol Hill. It was the Gates Foundation who was saying, oh, no, you need to leave GMO foods alone because it's going to help cure world hunger, which is a false claim. But understanding that Bill Gates bought 500,000 shares of Monsanto in 2010, and now he's using the Gates Foundation to lobby on these issues. So, you know, let's let's look at what are we doing in the name of making money for Bill Gates and Monsanto instead of let's let the consumer make their own decision. Now, let me, if I want to have a sugared cereal occasionally, that's my decision as a consumer. It shouldn't be the government's decision to say no to me so or to restrict have, that access. So we have vaccine mandates or alleged mandates uh, or coercion that are forcing, trying to force the citizenry to artificially immunize themselves. We have Codex that is taking away, trying to take away the citizenry's empowerment to naturally immunize themselves. We have uh, forces that are degrading our food supply, also being able to keep ourselves healthy naturally. Mm-hmm. Hmm. How um, it, it, and at the heart of all of these conversations is who gets to make the decision. In my belief that we that our Creator uh, inherently gave us the right to to health, freedom, you know, to, the liberty for life, you know, and the pursuit of happiness, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's what our founding fathers uh, included in the in the Constitution, and I think it's inherent uh, globally that we should be able to make these own decisions and to be adequately informed. It gets back into the what is the role of government uh, conversation. And, you know, the FDA's role used to be to make sure that the products that entered the marketplace were, were clean, that they didn't have contaminants. Now, since the thalidomide issue of 50 years ago, they were able to make it, they were able to capitalize upon that and then say you have safe and effective so they are they now regulate the conversations that take place around products that enter the marketplace and can keep stuff out of the marketplace based on what they see as the standard to approve which cost a drug company about a dozen years and a billion dollars they want to force that same standard on dietary supplements and we have so far been able to push back on that because dietary supplements are regulated like foods not drugs and while there is a if there's a new dietary ingredient there's a uh, a notification to the FDA where they can reject it but they don't need to go through the same level and expense of a product uh drug approval process so and you know consumers and globally it's the same thing we have to make sure that the policies in place both, you know, preserve your choice, but focus on cleanliness issues. You know, is the product contaminated? Is it accurately labeled? That's what people want from their government. The dietary supplements remind me of what goes on with the health, with the uh, medical practitioners, the doctors, because um, so many regulations get put in place that will put the little honest dietary supplement manufacturer out of business when they're just trying to provide a product to help the citizenry naturally immunize themselves and keep themselves healthy. Um, and with the doctors, again, you know, the 
the ethical one, you know, can be put out of business, tied up with stuff that costs lots of money to do. Well, and, and you know, it's interesting that science, where, where there has been science conducted or where there's been reviews of what's already in place, uh, we find, for instance, the number one thing you can do to prevent flu uh, if you don't want to do a flu vaccine is vitamin D. Supplement with vitamin D. It's low cost. It's very effective. Most of the population is, you know, has uh, inadequate levels of vitamin D to begin with. And vitamin D affects not just the immune response. It affects the cardiovascular system. It affects so much. And yet if we destroy our access to low-cost dietary supplements, then we increase our health care cost over time. And, and we've had a backwards approach in medicine where we wait till somebody gets sick to address an issue rather than focusing on how can you keep somebody well, how can you, and how can you support the body's enhanced uh, innate system of seeking wellness, you know, the homeostasis. The body naturally seeks homeostasis, to, to love, the ability to find wellness. And if we support that system, then, then we support wellness and we reduce our expenses in health care. Yes, that makes sense. Well, let's talk to about autism in specific. And some people okay. downplay an autism epidemic, or at least they seem to contend that the autistic have always been with us. Are you personally really sure that there's an autism epidemic? I am 100% absolutely sure that we have an epidemic rise in the, the prevalence of autism nationwide and globally. If you, you cannot say that the numbers that are coming out for children born in the year 2000 in the states that were reviewed, that an average of 1 in 88 children um, is on the autism spectrum, that there is not an, uh, a dramatic increase. It's not better diagnostics. It's not that we've raised awareness. There are more children who are on the autism spectrum. We weren't missing these children. You know, when the statistic was 1 in 10,000, we the, the children were not autistic. You know, there there may have been some, maybe it's 10% that were missed, but you can't go in my lifetime from 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 88 and not say that there are more children who are on the autism spectrum. And you cannot say that that's a genetic epidemic because there is no such thing as a genetic epidemic. It is not just our genes that are at fault that make children born today have a 1 in 88 chance of being on the autism spectrum. Yeah, when you say it like that, Beth, it really seems illogical that we could have missed uh, 10,000 kids walking around. I, I was 40 years old before I met, well, late 30s, before I met anybody on the autism spectrum. And then I, you know, working for Congress and I start engaging in this and I have met literally thousands of families who are affected. People, I actually reconnected with somebody I knew in high school who has a child on the spectrum. And it was, you know, this craziness of how, how do you go you know, so many years and never meet anybody who's on the spectrum. And look, I've lived all around the world. I've lived on the up and down the East Coast, and, and I've lived in the Middle East, and I never met anybody on the autism spectrum until I worked for Congress. So what is happening in Washington in these areas now, insofar as autism and food supplement issues? Well, it, there's, you know, there's a lot happening and there's nothing happening all at the same time. Right now, Washington is, is it, it would have give all appearances singularly focused on finishing its business and going home um, at the end of the week or, or next week to focus on the campaign trail because we've got an election coming up in early November. But at the same time, behind the scenes, a lot is happening because we are working. I, I currently consult with Safe Minds, and we are working um, to raise awareness in the community, to engage the consumers, uh, to call their legislators and, and enga you know, encourage uh, investigations. We're working on getting congressional hearings to focus both on, uh, on the autism issues and how well the government's done in responding to this epidemic, as well as to look at the vaccine injury uh, response as well, because Congress stepped back when uh, the omnibus proceedings for autism were happening and, and let that process take its place, you know, run its course. And now it's run its course. And, and what the Supreme Court basically said in Russia, what says Congress needs to address some of the laws. There are some unanswered questions here that have to be that have to be resolved because we don't know how to, to rule, basically, uh, on one of these perspectives. So 
you know, there, there's a lot happening on addressing those issues. In Congress, there are two bills, H.R. 2908, which specifically addresses the ability for consumer testimonials on dietary supplements and other foods to be used right now in the, in the practice of the FDA. If a, consumer, if a company has a website where consumers can post their testimonials and they, they say, I'm using, you know, omega-3s to uh, treat my child's autism, for instance, and because autism is considered a disease and the definition of disease uh, in the FDA regulations of foods, that's, that can be used against that company for making, saying that the company is advertising a disease claim which violates federal law. And uh, so you either restrict consumer speech or you go after the company for violating the law. And so H.R. 2908, which Congressman Ron Paul introduced, would, would change that, would allow for free speech of consumer testimonials, because what I learned from families is they often, you know, learn on the Internet what other families are doing, because, because the American Academy of Pediatrics certainly hasn't addressed these issues, you know, to any level of integrity. The other, the other issue is that there's a, a labeling bill um, for genetically modified foods that uh, Congressman Kucinich, who sadly is leaving the Congress at the end of this year, um, has put in for um, a labeling bill, and that's H.R. 3553. Um, and that bill has 30 co-sponsors so far, and it basically says that the FDA shall require truthful labeling of food, that if they've been genetically engineered, um, that the consumer has a right to have that on the label. Well, Beth, thank you for letting us know about those two bills, and we're going to take a brief break here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsors, OxyHealth and Superberries. A shout-out to Lou and Lisa, and we'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Every weekend, take some time out of your schedule for New Reflections, featuring Dr. Adam Rubenstein. It's a show about all things aesthetic, from skin care to plastic surgery, health and beauty. You'll learn about the aesthetic products and procedures to embrace or avoid. Each show will feature live, virtual, interactive consultations that you'll be able to follow along with and featured guests from the world of beauty and aesthetics. Listen Saturdays at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, for New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We are back with Beth Clay. And Beth, you mentioned Dennis Kucinich before the break, and he's working on a bill. And I remember he was really helpful around the time of the Eli Lilly rider. Can you remind listeners what that was? Uh, yes. Um, during the... Uh, the bioterrorism issues we had, you know, as people may recall, uh, 11 years ago, not only were we attacked by terrorists uh, through planes attacking the World Trade Center, but Capitol Hill and other locations were attacked with an anthrax in the, in the, the mail system. So there was an emergency proceeding in a bioterrorism bill that, by convenience, the Department of Health and Human Services actually had crafted language to uh, uh, to include, which would. Uh, um, protect the, the manufacturers of Thimerosal from being sued. Uh, this was during the discussions of the vaccine injury and Thimerosal issue. So uh, a rider was placed on this terrorism bill, that the bill that was creating the Department of Homeland Security, and it was slipped into the bill. Now, Chairman Burton, whom I worked for, was chairman of the committee who had overall jurisdiction of this, and we were not told ahead of time that this was being slipped in. And uh, it ended up a very dramatic experience of being voted on and then finding the language was in there and, uh, you know, my trying to reach him and couldn't reach him while he's in discussions. And, and then he votes and then he finds out it's in there and we, we get a promise before the bill is finalized that we'll repeal this, this rider. 
And it, this was a bipartisan effort that Congressman Burton, who's a Republican, Congressman Kucinich, uh, Senator Stabenow and Levin were very helpful as well. And it was one of those times that on the committee, Congressman Kucinich was on my committee, we could reach across the aisle. He, because his, his background in alternative medicine, he'd studied with Michio Kushi, and I was aware of that. We could reach across the aisle on issues, and while he was a strong supporter of his mentor, Congressman Waxman, he would often try to be the, the one member on the Democratic side that we could have a dialogue with and find uh, the common ground. And so he was incredibly helpful on those issues. Let's bring everything together for our listeners. Is there a comprehensive picture here? We've talked about codex. We've talked about vaccines, autism, GMOs. There's water fluoridation efforts out there. How are all of these issues and other issues somehow tied together, or are they? Well, uh, one thing, when you mentioned water fluoridation, I'm reminded of one of my favorite people in the world, and that's um, Clinton Ray Miller. He's 91 years old. He's a health freedom advocate that I have learned a great deal from and, and call a great friend. Um, but, yes, when you look at this whole perspective and you look at it from the autism community perspective, autism is the canary in the coal mine for the entire planet. The, these children who are our, typically our best and our brightest, who are the most vulnerable um, have been injured environmentally. They weren't born ill, most children. They were born healthy and norm, quote-unquote normal or atypical and uh, have been injured through uh, access to chemicals, whether in our food supply or medical injury, such as a vaccine injury, um, or a combination thereof, which I oftentimes think it's a combination. You know, you have people who've had a direct medical injury, and then we compound that with exposure to chemicals in other ways, and because the medical community has failed to aggressively address this, who have failed in their responsibility to be the champions for these children and instead have fallen back on that, we've got to protect vaccine policy at all costs, um, we have the families and the parents who have had to become and remain the top advocates for doing good research for developing new treatments. And when you look at dietary supplements, play into this and the, the, the freedom to maintain access to good foods, whole foods, and, and non-genetically modified foods, and to make access to supplements um, uh, an important aspect is because it has been dietary supplements and their wise use um, has been crucial for families addressing the different issues that their children um, have been dealing with. So whether it's dealing with the chelating out the heavy metals or um, are dealing with the, the irritable bowel issues, the combination of drugs that are effective and supplements that, that also help, and then looking at uh, gluten-free and casein-free diets and how you have to supplement certain nutrients to get a well-balanced nutritional perspective. Because if you don't address nutrients, then brain health um, is affected as well as the overall body health. Uh, and so it all comes together in this big umbrella issue of health freedom. It is our inherent right um, as, an, as a human being on the planet to make these choices for ourselves and our families. And that's all this comes together in promoting and preserving those rights. It seems like anything that families of kids with autism are trying to do, that facet of health care is being attacked. You know, you're exactly right. It's every time something innovative happens. You know, whether it's a doctor who, like Dr. Wakefield, who publishes a paper, which is exactly what he should have done as a, as a physician in the, in the research world, um, publishes a paper with a theory, you know, a hypothesis about, well, there's a, there's a potential link here. He's attacked. He's vilified. He loses his medical license because he dared to ask a tough question. Here, you know, the MMR vaccine, uh, it seems to be connected to the development of an irritable bowel condition in children who then develop, go on to develop autism. That is a question that should have been asked, and he asked and answered and has been replicated in other countries in the world. And he was attacked for telling the truth and for, for um, you know, doing research with, you know, families, you know, allow asking, you know, he was attacked and lost his license because he asked other doctors and healthcare professionals of which, you know, knew the risk of drawing blood um, from their children so they could have the, the uh, control samples to compare them against. There was, you know, maybe it wasn't the best way to go about it, but there was nothing wrong in that. And I can guarantee you some of the ways that they go about doing research in this country would shock people. 
uh, and how do you get controls and some of the things that have happened. You walk the halls of some of the hospitals in this nation and see what they're doing in research and children, uh, and you would be mortified. So how can citizens take back their jurisdiction, control, and empowerment over their own health? Uh, number one, to be civically active. You know, you have a, a right to engage in the process. That's one of the reasons the Canary Party is so important, is educating people, involving them in the process. So much that has happened in Washington has happened because of families. You engaged, you called your members of Congress, you sent letters, um, you voted, um, which is very important. And the same thing worldwide is you engage in the dialogue. The Internet is a very uh, powerful tool because you can get the word out both on radio and written content. And, you know, people have conversations. And then, you know, one person gets together with a second person, and pretty soon you've got 100 people talking, and 100 people can, you know, engage in the, the political process. So, you know, one, to get engaged and stay engaged. If you have questions, ask them. And don't be satisfied until you get the answers you need. And then... And then you know, find out what's important specifically to you as an individual. Not everybody's going to want to be involved in GMO food issues or codex uh, or vaccine issues. You know, not everybody in the autism community is focused on vaccine injury issues. So what is it in autism that matters to you? Is it housing issues? Is it long-term care? Is it insurance reimbursement and the ERISA reforms that are needed? If those are the issues that you care about, engage on them and then fight for a solution. And that's, you know, what everybody has to do is find your own hot button and focus on it and work towards a solution. And if folks would like additional direction or have questions, how can they contact you? Uh, the easiest way to contact me is my email address, beth at bethclay.com. That's easy to remember, beth at bethclay.com. Well, Beth, thank you for being part of this rousing discussion this morning and making I'm happy to be aware. on of what's going on out there that you, you won't hear it on the nightly news? Uh, sadly so. Um, sadly, our news reporters are not doing their jobs in investigating uh, and reporting accurately. Well, please do get in touch with Beth Clay if you have any additional questions. And next week we're going to be joined by MBA's Michael Sanders and Lisa Rudley talking about the very important topic of life care planning for individuals with autism. The epidemic numbers of kids will grow up, and the, for those who haven't recovered yet, and there are kids who recover, you need to have a safe plan. So thank you to this program's sponsors, OxyHealth and Superberries, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.